Today's video was recorded on April 19, 2022, and this is the 13th in our series through the book of Exodus. And this lesson is the third in a short three-part series about the Passover. So in this video, we talk about the Last Supper and whether or not that meal that Jesus had with his disciples was a Passover Seder or not. We'll look at some of the details that are shown in the Gospels and how they fit into the traditions of a Passover Seder. One of the more important parts of a Passover Seder has to do with a piece of matzah called the afikomen. And many scholars believe that this is the piece of matzah, the afikomen, that that is the bread that Jesus is identifying with as his body. So we'll be taking a look at that afikomen and see how that piece comes to be identified with the Messiah. Now, as a reminder, the two previous videos that we just did cover many of the details about Passover as a holiday and the details in Exodus chapter 12. So make sure you check out these videos because the more you learn about the Passover holiday, the more you'll see those details show up throughout the Bible. And this is particularly important as you read the New Testament and the Gospel writings to understand how the message about Jesus fits into not only the Passover holiday, but the entire holiday system that God implements. So understanding the Passover holiday and the rest of those holidays help you deepen your understanding of God's plan for redemption and how Jesus as the Passover lamb fits into it. So we hope you enjoy today's lesson on the details of the Passover meal presented in the Gospels and how we can understand the afikomen and Jesus's words connecting himself to that piece of bread. Looking at the title, the title that I put on your sheet and the title that I'm putting on the video, what we're going to do is look at Jesus as what's called the afikomen. And I'll show you how this all fits together, God willing. There are a number of scholars who think that this piece of matzah is what it is, and afikomen is a piece of matzah, began to be identified with the Messiah in the first century. So that by the time Jesus comes along to our Last Supper, we call it, He's integrating this idea of a piece of unleavened bread symbolizing Messiah. That's the afikomen. So we'll, we'll go through this. You'll judge on whether I'm able to pull all that together or not. But that's our task tonight. So this is part three. Part three of Passover. So we did kind of an overview uh, a few weeks ago. We talked about the four cups of wine and how there's an increasing intimacy with God. God brings you out. He redeems you back into the household. He wants to... Uh, it's, the intimacy is like a marriage. So just like at the, at the end of Revelation, where the bridegroom, Jesus, comes back to get his bride, then all is consummated. That's how intimate God wants to uh, live with us. And then last week, or two weeks ago, we did Exodus 12, how important it is to know all those details in Exodus 12 and how they fit Jesus in the New Testament. And then this week, we'll do the, we're going to look actually at the Passover, well, we'll look at the dinner that we call the Last Supper. Some people would argue that it's a Passover Seder, 
and then we'll look at some of those details and how they fit in and what with what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Okay, so this is part 13 of our study through the book of Exodus. And to give everybody a reference, particularly for those that will come after and watch it on video, so a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight, the Afikoman, uh, I'm pulling from this gentleman right here, David Daub. Now, I have on your sheet, I have uh, under number one, if you happen to have the handout out, his name is bolded, and I have a, I have a footnote to a paper written about him. But just so you know, David Daub, now he's Jewish. Born uh, in in Europe, he studied the Talmud, which is the biblical uh, or the Jewish writings. He's he was a expert in Roman law, in biblical law, in Jewish law, and he wrote a lot about the New Testament. So, incredible scholar. He ended up at uh, UC Berkeley uh, in their law department. But this is who I'm going to rely on, and. In the event that you'd like to read something by him, his books are kind of, well, they're not hard to get, but they're obscure. This is the one that many people, when it comes to New Testament studies, will have. It's called The New Testament and Rabbinic Judaism. Now, this is a great book, but if you're day one on this journey of, you know, trying to uh, see the Jewish roots of Christianity, this is going to be a tough one to start with. It's very technical. He covers a lot of ground, very detailed. So this might not be the greatest one to start with, but if you want a good reference, this is one you can grow into and read your entire life and always find something you didn't quite see before. So that's one of his books. So he's going to be someone that I'm going to be leaning on for a lot of this information because he wrote a lot about this idea of our Last Supper and whether it was a Passover Seder or not, and then during the Passover Seder, we'll, we'll talk about what that means, there's uh, something called the Afikomen. And so he believes that Jesus is interacting with this idea of the Afikomen. Okay, so there's a debate. Let's just say there's a debate. Was the Last Supper considered a Passover Seder? Some people say yes, some people say no, for various reasons. Now, I lean on the side that says yes. The very first time I learned about a Passover Seder, I just kind of said, well, it's obvious. All those details are in there. But then again, not everybody agrees. That's religion for you. We don't always agree on what we see. So if we look real quick, this is, quote is at the top of your handout. Jesus, um, this is the quote we get out of Luke. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, what does that mean? What does to eat this Passover mean? Is it like a Passover Seder that you may go to today? Well, that's the debate that we're having. Some say yes, some say no. But what does Jesus mean? Because what we find, scholars recognize there are elements of a Passover Seder that have been there since we... Since the oldest records of a Passover Seder, we see elements in the, New, in the New Testament. And it would be unlikely for a Jewish audience to insert something that they know is in our New Testament. So it's more likely that those things existed. They predated Jesus. You see Jesus 
celebrating the Passover, and then those traditions keep going in a, in a regular Passover. So, to me, you have the Jewish people for hundreds of years trying to obey all of God's commands. The holiday of Passover is the most important holiday. We find it throughout the, the Old Testament that they're celebrating it, and especially, you know, it's that it's that holiday that celebrates redemption. You're under Roman rule and you hate it, right? You are going to celebrate that Passover with all your heart. And what always happens with human beings is they're going to come up with traditions. And that's what we see. These are nothing but traditions. Over time, we eat ham on Easter Sunday because we've been eating ham on Easter Sunday since we were a child. And somewhere along the line, someone said that's what we're supposed to do. So that's the tradition. That's how traditions go. So we're going to read this as if it's a Passover meal. Okay, so if we look at the idea of um, a Seder, what does a Seder mean? What's that word actually mean? And Seder just means order. It's the order that you're going through where you're going to celebrate a holiday that commemorates the redemption of the Israelites from Egypt. That's all you're doing. So you follow a set order. That's a Seder. It tells the story. We were slaves once. God redeemed us. Now we're free. It also, it's a, it's a joyous occasion. You thank God for redeeming you in the past, and you look forward to the final redemption in the future. So it's a holiday that looks both backwards and thanksgiving, and forward in expectation, just like we would, God, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus, and we look forward to the resurrection in the afterlife. It's the same idea. Um, now, if this is a holiday that celebrates the redemption of Egypt, when God overthrew the most powerful person in the world, and you're in living under Roman rule and you hate it, you can't wait for that holiday. Come on, God, overthrow these Romans. You know, we hate being ruled by them. And who is the character from the Old Testament that's going to lead the way for redemption? Well, he's the Messiah. He's the coming Messiah. So there's the expectation that the Messiah is going to come again on Passover to redeem the nation of Israel again. What do they want as Jesus is coming into town as the king? Come on, Jesus. Go get the Romans. Throw off that yoke, just like God did with the Pharaoh. So it's, it's a heightened emotion and a heightened awareness that they're looking for the Messiah. Okay, one problem we have. And this little, this slide's not on your sheet, but you guys are aware of these names, so it's... um. There, there's no uniform celebration. There's no first century Judaism was not a uniform uh, religion. Little groups would do different things, have different traditions. Um, different communities would have a different way of celebrating. Now, it's not vastly different, but, you know, uh, Western Christians don't celebrate Christmas the way that Eastern Orthodox celebrate Christmas. So, you know, even within Christianity, we're not uniform on everything that we do. So, for instance, the four major groups uh, in Jesus' day that we are mostly aware of, 
there are there are groups scattered all over the place that w- may identify themselves, but you have the Sadducees, the Pharisees, a group that's called the Essenes, and then a group that is just like the Pharisees, but they're turned violent, and that's the Zealots. So four groups, there, and those are the main groups there in Israel, and so they would all be celebrating Passover, but they'd do it a little bit different. So for instance, the Sadducees are the priests of class. They're in charge. Are they looking for a Messiah to come to overthrow the, turn over the order? No, they don't want a Messiah to come. In fact, that's what many people think. They don't want Jesus to be, to show up and disrupt what they've got going. The Sadducees are not going to have the same expectations as, say, the Essenes. And the Essenes, this is who we identify with the Dead Sea Scrolls. They are looking for a Messiah. And the Dead Sea Scrolls have a, one of the scrolls is called the War Scroll. The sons of light going up against the sons of darkness. And there's a huge battle and the sons of light win. And so uh, within that Essene group, you want the Messiah to come lead the way. And then finally, of course, the Zealots, that's who's cheering for Jesus as he's coming into town. And of course, he says, no, 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 you forgive the Romans. and then then they cancel Jesus, in a sense. There was cancel culture back then, the moment you disagree with what, how you want to go about doing things. So the bottom three, Pharisees, Essenes, Zealots, they all have a massive uh, messianic expectation for Passover. So David Dobb and others, other scholars, argue that when you get to this piece of matzah, they've attached that piece of matzah to the expectations of Messiah coming. And we'll get to that towards the end. So that's, uh, that's number one, Passover Seder and the expectations of those first century uh, Jews in Israel. And then what I want to do is we're going to go through some of the details of the gospel writers that they put down about the Last Supper. And there's no way, for those of you who've been to Seders, you know how many little details there are. There's no way and a chance we could get all of them. I'm always learning new ones. It always surprises me that there's some little detail that I didn't know before. So we're going to just talk about a list of them, but I want to be able to show, kind of, kind of give you an, uh, an image of what is going on at that meal and how it fits with this idea of something called the afikomen. So, for instance, this is number two now on your handout. We'll talk about reclining at a table. And the custom at Passover was to recline on your left. Now, first of all, wealthy people recline. Wealthy people recline. Those who are not wealthy don't recline. So why is this night different than all other nights? Why do we recline to the left? Well, because we're wealthy in God's eyes. You recline to the left. We'll talk about that when it comes to Jesus and the disciples. They're going to eat matzah, unleavened bread. That's part of it, of course, because it's the holiday of unleavened bread. Uh, There's going to be bitter herbs involved. So the tradition is you eat some bitter herbs as a reminder of the bitterness of slavery so that you never forget. And this is a great thing. If we did this every year with our kids, you get a big old dollop of horseradish and have your kids put it in their mouth, and you say, that's what sin tastes like. Because you think 
when you're about to do something that there's going to be no after effect to your sin. No, it tastes just like the bitterness of bitter herbs. So watch out that you're not sinning. There's four cups of wine, of course. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but that's a big part of it. The Passover Seder is structured around that. And then we'll finish tonight with a little mini ceremony that goes on inside that Passover Seder that has to do with something called afikomen, whatever that is, and the messianic significance of the afikomen. So that's what we're going to do. We'll go through each of those, and God willing, I'll be able to put a little bow on it towards the end here tonight. Okay, so the first thing is, we have been, we have an image of the Last Supper in our mind. If I say Last Supper, what's the painting that comes to mind? Well, it's Da Vinci's, right? So we, that painting is so powerful in our mind that when we hear about the Last Supper, we read our Bible, we often have that picture of Jesus and his disciples at a normal table, right? Now, what are the odds that Da Vinci painting that many years later is capturing what a first century banquet would have looked like? So the first thing we have to recognize is in the ancient Near East, uh, they would have a banquet at something called a triclinium. Tri, three-part, cline, couch. Triclinium. So it looks something like this, and I say something because it's artist rendering, and I'll show you in a minute. Western artists have a real hard time getting everybody on, the, on their left arm. So each person is lying down on some kind of couch. The food will be served to you in the center, and you're leaning on your left side. And you eat with your right hand. Now, for those of you who've been to the Middle East, why do you lean on your left side? What hand do you not eat with in the Middle East? Your left hand, right? Unfortunately, you know, the toiletries were not like what we, what we have here to, in the West. And the left hand is considered the dirty hand. That's the hand that's used for cleaning. And uh, exactly. So you don't want to have that communal bowl of food and you sticking your left hand in there, they'll kick you out. But even today, uh, very the left hand, you don't shake hands with the left hand, you don't eat with the left hand in the Middle East. So you're leaning on your left, you're eating with your right. So here's another artist rendering of that. This one might be a little bit closer to what we're getting at. But you can see everybody reclining at the table reaching in to grab uh, the food with your right hand. You can find tricliniums all over the East. Let me at, le at least show you one from Israel. This was in Herod the Great's palace. So this is the banquet hall of Herod the Great's palace called the, the uh, Herodium. And you can see there's three sides. I'll draw a little blue line. One, a side along the back a side coming along uh, the left side or the right side of the screen. That's your triclinium. They would recline on there, and then someone would bring the food and serve them on little tables. So you can see it's set. That's a, that's a large room. It's set further apart, but it's for a big banquet hall. That's, um, this is Herod's 
Herod's palace at the time of Jesus' birth looks something, well, it looks like this today, the largest palace complex in the world when Jesus was born. And this, of course, is where he held his banquets. So that's a triclinium. You might get different artist renderings, but basically you get the point. Three sides and you're uh, leaning on your left side. I mentioned Western artists have a hard time painting this, right? Because they want to put everybody facing one direction or facing each other. So if you notice, I'm going to put a red circle around this guy in the back. What's he doing wrong? Which hand is he eating fruit with? You would assume the artist would know, but here's a guy eating fruit with his left hand. Now, he'd be kicked off the table for, you know, picking up the food. This guy on the front is drinking. So I only say that because you can find these pictures, artist renderings, and they're always a little bit, it's like the Western idea can't paint the picture where everybody's, you know, leaning on their, only on their left hand. So just wanted to point that out. Um, okay, so triclinium, they're reclining, right? So let's go to a seating chart. Let's talk about where is Jesus? Where are the disciples? Would we be able to know from the text where they're sitting? That evening, if they're sitting at something called the triclinium, where would they be sitting? So, here's my crude depiction of a triclinium, the table. So, Luke tells us the disciples go into Jerusalem. He says, Jesus says, go look for a man carrying water. And that tells us what quarter of, the of Jerusalem they're in. If a man is carrying water, it means there's only men. And that's the Essene quarter, because the Essenes were, were a, a male-dominated group. So if a man's carrying water, it's, you're in the Essene quarter. And that's exactly, if you look at a map, maybe in the back of your Bible, where it shows the traditional site of the Last Supper, it should say on that map, Essene quarter. So you're in the Essene quarter of Jerusalem. And it says, go to the room that's prepared for us. So they've got a room that's going to be a banquet room. Okay, now where do we put Jesus, right? Most of us, you know, because we want to put Jesus, I don't know, at the middle, maybe like uh, Da Vinci's uh, painting, but Jesus would be right about there. So on your handout, you'll see Jesus is the what we would call the honored guest. He's the honored guest because he's the oldest. He's the honored guest because he's the teacher. And he's going to be then, and I know I couldn't, I was trying to find a, an image that would show someone leaning on their left. But he's, so this little arrow is pointing up, meaning everybody's pointing uh, in, in the same direction, okay? Then you would have somebody on this side and somebody on his right side. And then all the disciples are going to fill in around the table. So you'll end up surrounding the table. They're all facing, again, going in, little blue arrows on the screen there, but they're all leaning left uh, with their, the, your back would be to somebody's face. Okay, now, Two important seats, very important seats. Jesus is the oldest and the honored guest. Right next to him, at his right hand, is the youngest. Even today, at a Passover meal, the eldest sits wherever the head of the table is. The youngest sits right next to him. 
And then on Jesus' left would be this, what they would call the second honored guest. Okay? So youngest, second honored guest. And then finally, way over on the very end, way over here where I put the red circle, that's where the foot washer sits. So someone's going to be designated to wash everybody's feet as they come in. Who's the foot washer? Peter. When, Peter, when Jesus stands up to wash Peter's feet, he says, no, 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 I'm supposed to wash your foot, your feet. And then Jesus goes into his foot washing thing. Peter would be the foot washer. He's the very last one in the, maybe he's all upset because, you know, he's the oldest and doesn't want to wash anybody's feet. But, okay, so that's, we at least know a couple different disciples on this table. The youngest, the second honored guest, and the foot washer. Okay, next thing that's going to happen is you're going to set the food out. And for every three people, because you're laying on your side, you're going to get a bowl of food. Or your food's going to come and it's going to be in bowls. You're going to share it. It's communal. So there would be plates of food, bowls of food around the table. And so Jesus is going to eat out of a bowl or multiple dishes with two other people. And that's who we want to know. Who are those other people? Okay. All right. Does everybody have that picture thus far? We'll come back to it in a minute. But now let's go read John. We're going to read John's description of this. So turn to John 13. I put 18 to 30, but we're probably not going to get to verse 30. But I want to start at John 13, verse 18. Because this is going to indicate who's sitting next to Jesus. You can also go read these in Matthew and... and, uh, Mark, I'll show you one from Mark because it gives a little bit uh, different description. Okay, so Jesus, um, John, there's a discourse happening, and then Jesus says, look, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen, and then he's going to go into the part about Judas betraying him, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture, and now he's going to quote something, and we'll come back to this in a minute. He who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now he's quoting Psalm 41.9. We'll get there. But he who shares my bread is going, has lifted up his heel against me. And this is, it's genius what Jesus does here. With this quote from scripture and then the seating chart. And it, it's, well... Hang on, we'll get there. Okay, we'll come back to Psalm 41.9. Then he says this. He says, hey, look, I'm telling you before it happens, so when it happens, you'll believe that I am who I am. I tell you, whoever accepts anyone uh, I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Okay, next verse. Now his spirit is going to be troubled. Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he said, very truly I tell you, One of you is going to betray me. Then his disciples were staring at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. Now, here's where we get to the part that's going to help you understand what's going on. 
One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who's the disciple whom Jesus loved in John? It's John. That's how he refers to himself. So the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, was what? Reclining next to him. He's reclining. Now, all the other texts tell us that they're reclining at the meal. But this is where we find it in John. So John's reclining right next to Jesus. Simon Peter motions to the disciple and says, ask him which one he means. Right? Hey, John, lean back to ask Jesus what he meant, right? So look at the next, the next part of the verse. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him. Now, where does that tell us that John is sitting? If we know that part, right? Because if you lean backwards to talk to Jesus, then we go back to our picture, and John is right here. He's to the right hand of Jesus, and he's the youngest. So we can change that youngest, and we can say, that's John sitting right there. Peter, remember, is somewhere across the table. He's the foot washer. So he's pointing over to John. Hey, get, get Jesus' attention. Ask him who's going to betray him. Okay? So that's where we know John's sitting. Now, look at verse 26. John 13, 26. Because Jesus is now going to tell us. Jesus answered, It's the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Ishkiriot. In Hebrew, Iscariot, we say. So, where's Judas sitting? If Jesus can dip a piece of bread and hand it to him, right? He's got to be pretty close. Now, this is John's description. I just want to show you Mark. You'll have to go look at Mark. But on the screen, here's Mark's. Jesus replies, the one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Well, if Jesus and Judas are sharing a bowl, then where is Judas sitting, right? He's dipped it, and he's dipping the piece of bread into the bowl with me. So if we go back to our picture, Judas is right here. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. First of all, that's the second honored guest. Think about what Jesus is doing here, right? So this becomes Judas down here. Now, first of all, Jesus knows he's going to betray him and makes him the second honored guest anyways. Right? Could we all aspire to be that gracious when you know someone's already betrayed you? Now, second, if you're Judas, where do you want to be sitting? Somewhere way away from Jesus, right? Maybe this one way over here, because you're leaning to the... Whatever Judas... He doesn't want to have to sit and talk to Jesus. That's right. You've just betrayed your rabbi. You have a sinking feeling, a pit in your stomach, because you know what you did, and you don't even want to have to talk to him. And Jesus says, no, 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 Judas, come here. Sit right next to me. And then I'm going to quote scripture to talk about the one who shares the bread with me. And so Judas 
you know, wanting to sit between Matthew and Nathaniel or something or Philip, you know. I mean, can you, I, I just, when, I, when this dawned on me, oh, I thought, oh, he must feel so terrible. He's got to sit right next to Jesus. And then Jesus is going to use it because he's quoting scripture and he's going to hand a little piece of matzah after dipping it in the bowl to Judas and say, okay, Judas, now go do what you need to do. And I just find that, to me, it just blows my mind. Now, what are they doing? What's Jesus up to? He's dipping. What is he dipping? What's going on here? Well, this is the part about the bitter herbs that comes in. Part of the meal, you're going to dip the matzah into the bitter herbs, and you're going to eat the bitter herbs, right? So, if we go back to this, Jesus says, it's the one whom I will give this piece of bread at when I have dipped it in the dish. Then he dips the piece of bread. He gets the bitter herbs on the piece of bread and says, now eat it. And John eventually does say that Judas, after eating, laughed. Now, so what, right? Well, what do the bitter herbs represent? So first of all, it's the bitterness of slavery. But then, as we abstract it, because now we're talking spiritual exodus, it's the bitterness of sin. And I think, again, it's genius. Jesus gets a little bit of bitter herbs. Here, Judas, you eat this, now go. And what Judas doesn't get to do is wash down the terrible taste of the, of the bitter herbs with a glass of wine, the cup of redemption. He does not get to do that. And so he goes out into the cold Jerusalem night. It's in March or April. He's got a horrible taste in his mouth. It's going to linger. And I think it's so poignant what Jesus is doing. He doesn't just send him away. He sends him away with the taste of sin, the, the bitterness of sin. He's going to be thinking about what he's done all night. So it's remarkable how Jesus is is choreographing this whole thing with Judas. Now, to make it even worse for poor Judas, because, you know, Jesus is turning the screws on him, I want to go back to this Psalm 41.9. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalm 41.9, because Jesus is going to, he only quotes the second half of Psalm 41.9, and this is what we have to be aware of. We don't have Psalm 41.9 memorized, but his disciples did. And now he's going to quote the second half of it, where he says, He who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That's what he quoted in John. And you say, okay, well, what's the first half of Psalm 41.9? What's the part? Because he, notice he quotes it before telling everybody that it's Judas, right? So Judas knows the, the verse and still has to sit there next to Jesus. So, Psalm 41.9, what does the whole verse say? Well, it starts like this. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Judas. This is what, what Jesus is doing here is called a remez. It's a technique. I quote one half of a verse, and your brain fills in the rest. For God so loved the world that... 
and you guys can all fill in the rest. I get you to come up with the answer. So Jesus quotes a verse, and Judas knows, Judas, you're my close friend. I trusted you. You handled the money. And even my closest friend. And imagine, again, you're feeling terrible because you you're betraying your rabbi, and then Jesus quotes this verse. And you know what he's saying. He's telling you that you were a close friend, and you betrayed him. I mean, this is really, it's a genius way to communicate. If we would, you know, I can't play this game. I don't know the Old Testament that well. Drives me nuts that I can't play that game. But it's genius because he gets his point across. Judas, you were my close friend and I trusted you and you lifted up your heel against me. Anyways, I just wanted to show that it's, it really is amazing when you can start putting these little details in and recognize how Jesus is choreographing this. Okay, now we have to get to that. We have to get to the afikoman part. So let me do a little bit of a shift, but I'll show you how this fits in. Um, so we're on number six. Okay, number six on your handout. It's on the back, and this is the, the afikoman. So first of all, what is an afikoman? Right, it's part of the ceremony. First of all, it's a Greek word, so it's not a Hebrew word. Somehow it ends up in this Jewish what's called the Haggadah, the, the telling, and it's a Greek borrow word, and there's a lot of mystery. Uh, the rabbis are not quite sure how it got in there, but it ends up in there, and it's part of the ceremony. So, afikomen, what is it? Well, it has to do with matzah, and let me just depict it a little bit. Um, at the very beginning of the Passover Seder, they're going to set aside three matzahs. One, two, three matzahs. Now keep in mind the number three in a minute, because these matzahs are going to come to represent either people or a person. Okay, so you have three matzahs. Then the leader of the Passover Seder will extract from the three matzahs the middle matzah. So they extract the middle matzah, then they break the matzah in half, and the larger side becomes the afikomen. So when you see the word afikomen, it's a very specific piece of bread inside the ceremony of the Passover Seder. Okay? Now, I want you to think of the number three. Biblical threes, right? Because these pieces of bread are going to come to represent either people or a person. So what did, what's the tradition, right? Well, let's, let's think about this. So according to the rabbis, they would say, ah, the priests, the Levites, and the Israelites. Those are the three groups of people in, in, uh, in Israel. That's what the matzah represents. But you'd say, well, okay, that's, maybe that's a three, but the, the Levites aren't broken. Why would you break the middle matzah, right? Oh, okay, so maybe if it's not that, let's move to the next one. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Those are our, the patriarchs, right? Now, this one makes more sense, right? Because what happened to Isaac? He was broken. The binding of Isaac. So, the, the, the Abraham commanded to sacrifice his son. So, that one would make a little bit more sense. 
but they began to recognize that piece of afikomen as the Messiah. It became messianic in a way. So what would we say the three are? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And which one was broken? Right there. So it fits. It fits the afikomen and, according to David Daub, fits the idea that that piece of uh, this afikomen piece right here uh, began to be recognized with the Messiah. Now, why? Well, here's what happens. You break the the matzah into two pieces. Then you take a covering, maybe like a shroud of sort, a linen, and you cover the afikomen, and it then gets carried away. And it disappears for a while. So, I mean, that right there, you're like, of course. I, I, we covered him in linen, and he disappeared for a while. And when the meal goes to end, when we get to the end of the meal, it's after dinner. The very last piece of food we're going to eat, what you would consider dessert, is the afikomen. It comes back out. It reappears. The shroud is lifted, right? And there's our bread again. And you break a little piece. And so what happens at a, at a Passover meal, every single person has to take a little piece of that afikomen and eat it as the last thing you eat. Okay? Now, what does Luke tell us? It was after dinner. And now Jesus is going to start engaging bread, which we have to remember, unleavened bread, and he's going to engage wine, right? So what does Jesus say? And he took bread, he took the unleavened bread, the matzah, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to everybody. He's breaking it into little pieces. Everyone's going to eat this little piece of matzah, the afikomen. This is my body given for you. So this piece of matzah that they had uh, symbol, became symbolic for the Messiah, Jesus is saying, I'm that. This is me. And now we're going to take this, just as we do every year, but now you're going to recognize that I'm the afikomen in this. I'm the Messiah. It's a way of revealing his, uh, who he is. And then Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, okay? So he took the bread, he broke it, that's afikomen, he gave it, he distributes it out to little pieces, and then he says this, do this. Now this is where, uh, from, from Christians to Messianic Jews, where we differ when it comes to what we do every week as communion. So if you go to a Passover Seder, say with Rabbi Barney in San Diego, they do this communion once per year at the Passover. Because Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. What are we doing? We're having the afikomen. We recognize that this represents the Messiah, and we're going to every Passover, because, you know, the early Christians, they still kept their Passover. It's not until later that the traditions begin to change, and of course, we, st- we have communion today, and it's, we're, we're pulling from this, 
But this is the beginning of it. This is the, the beginning of this tradition moving forward, particularly for the early Christians, so that every Passover, their redemption comes through Jesus, the Messiah. Now, what I haven't given you yet, what does afikomen mean in Greek? There's a debate. The rabbis say, ah, it just means dessert, and some, some say, ah, it means after-dinner entertainment, and blah, 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 and David Daub and, and many others say, no, no, no. The Greek means the coming one. So the rabbis have something in their Passover that's broken the middle, covered in a cloth, hidden away for a while, returns back at the end of the meal, and is revealed at the end. It's the coming one. And that's where you get this messianic idea. But they, for some strange reason, they used a Greek word. So there's so much going on in all of this. And I know. Uh, um, we can't get it all in one place. It's just too much information, too quickly. We can't take it all in. But I, I, I tell you, the more you can study this, the more you can study the Passover and the Passover, uh, the Last Supper, you begin to see these details, and there's tremendous significance to them. And uh, boy, it makes for a rich celebration that we can still do today, and including just like, like I mentioned at the Messianic synagogues, they will have that uh, afikomen and do exactly what Jesus said, recognize him as the Messiah in that uh, broken piece of bread. So, okay, what did we do tonight? Real quick review as we finish up. So, A, they're reclining. You recline at a Passover, the disciples are reclining. We know that. John leaned back into Jesus' chest. He's in that honored He's in the, the youngest person's seat, and therefore he can lean back into Jesus. Jesus, of course, makes Judas the second honored guest, which just blows your mind at what he's doing. And then he's going to use that to engage uh, something from the Old Testament with bitter herbs. And he's going to say, okay, Judas, now go ahead, do what you need to do. He sends him out. Judas, of course, ends up feeling terrible about what he did. Um, then you get the avikomen, and this is the part engaging the, that third cup of wine, the cup of redemption, the avikomen, the coming one, the one that reappears when the meal is over. Now, the question, and this is what we started with, Jesus, the avikomen? Really? Well, it appears that what Jesus is saying about himself is, yes, that's me. That's how you identify that I'm the Messiah. So, okay. That was Passover three of three. Now, real, just give me a real quick. Next week, um, we're going to talk about the Red Sea and then the parting of the Red Sea, this birth of a nation. And then the week after that, we'll talk about what it means to go walk out into the desert and why the Hebrew word for desert is so important for us to know. So that'll be what we'll do for the next couple of weeks. But hopefully this gives you a, a, a different picture of that Last Supper, of, the, of a Passover Seder, and how they're engaging with uh, all of these details that the gospel writers are putting in there that help us put this order together. <laughs>